everyone else who's going to be with me today, you can turn to Revelation chapter 7. Because nothing says Mother's Day like digging into the book of Revelation in a really intentional way. So we are going to keep walking through our series this morning that we've called Apocalypse Now, walking through the book of Revelation little by little. We are wrapping up today a 21-day fast. We didn't make this like an official Meadowbrook thing, just my wife and I wanted to do it, and so we invited anyone who wanted to join in with us. And we've just heard some cool stories about, uh, even separate from the season we're in, just answered prayers in different ways, and just one little quick snapshot of one. Uh, we have a lot of grass here at the church. We've got a lot of land out the back, and so we have a tractor, and a couple of weeks ago, the tractor died and just stopped working altogether, and so uh, Jim Dukeman's been helping out with that, and Pastor Xavier was involved, and uh, took it to a place, and it was going to be probably one to $2,000 to fix it, and so Jim was fasting and praying with us for other things, and but just thought, well, Lord, in this time of fasting and prayer, it'd be really nice if there was a solution to this thing, and so woke up one morning just with with an idea, called the guy who was working on it, says, why don't you try this? The guy tried it. The tractor worked instantly, didn't charge us a penny for any of it, and it came back to us working just fine. And so, yeah, that's worth just celebrating, one person in the room who's clapping. And so we are grateful for that, and we're just finding everything we can to be grateful for right now. And the main reason we fast and pray is because we're drawing close to the Lord. That is the main reason that we are doing that. And so one of the things that can also happen, this has happened in my house, is that as my wife and I gave up certain things and as we integrated some new uh, prayer time together and different things like that, we've decided some of these habits are just really good habits. We're just going to keep these up as we move forward. And so that's something good that fasting does as well as it teaches us self-discipline and helps us press into the Lord. So thank you for all of you who are joining in with us. Um, so as we get ready to jump into Revelation chapter 7, there's a, a uniquely human quality that we have called visual we have imaginations, and we seem to be unique in that in all of God's creation. And there are animals uh, that seem to have it maybe a little bit more than others, but animals tend to have instincts. They are able to do trial and error. They can learn behavior, but humans have the ability to see things that aren't there. We have the ability with our imagination that God has given us to visualize, and that makes us very creative. We're able to see problems and perceive solutions and find ways to do things. And so visual Visualization is an important thing that we use to get by. So I have never run a marathon in my life. It sounds like a full nightmare. I don't know why anyone does it. So a marathon here would be like running from here to Windsor, literally, like through Kingsville, through Essex, through everywhere to get to, that's how far a marathon is. It takes hours. Uh, if you're good at it, you can do it in a few hours. If you're not so great, it can take hours and hours. Never done it, don't want to. But I was reading about marathon runners this week, and one unique thing that marathon runners have is they have the ability to visualize the end in a way that really helps keep them going, where I feel like I would start to hit walls and then just want to be done with the whole thing. They have the ability to say, I can keep my focus on the finish line. I can keep my focus on the medal that I'm going to get at the end. I can keep my focus on the bed that I'm going to sleep in tonight. And sometimes at different points in the race, that's all that keeps you going. There is a, a mental battle being fought much more than a physical battle. And so we have that ability to see the end and it gets us through a lot of things. Any trial we are going through is helped if we can see the end of the 
trial. Scripture says this even about Jesus in Hebrews as he was going to the cross. It says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, that he was able to see the joy on the other side, and that was able to help him persevere. And so if we can keep the end goal in mind, that's going to help give us a lot of strength to keep going. And one of the things that Revelation does is that keeps Jesus in mind. It keeps heaven in mind. That's going to help us keep going. And as we go through our trials, like Jesus in the cross, if we can see the end, we'll find strength there to persevere. If you want to get some hope in this, if you want some encouragement, uh, Google Israel and COVID when you get a chance today. Because Israel, God's chosen people, God's holy land, uh, for all intents and purposes, COVID is basically gone there. And it was quite in the grip of it not that long ago. But if you look at Israel now, masks are gone, worship is wide open, restaurants are wide open, they're having concerts, their malls are packed. And so you read that stuff and you see their curve and it's just down. And COVID is still there, but it's just so minor. The hospitals are empty. So it is possible for a country to get on top of this and move out of this season. And it's just so refreshing. And I don't know what God's timeline is for Ontario and for Canada, but it is possible. It brings hope when you think about that, right? You see the end. The end is possible. And that's God's chosen people. Scripture says the gospel comes first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And so I say, Lord, in COVID, it's come for the Jews. Let it come for the Gentiles now. Let us follow after them and get to walk in that blessing ourselves. We want to be able to see the end and go, okay, that gives me hope to keep going. And so Revelation keeps our eyes fixed on Jesus, and it keeps our eyes fixed on heaven. And we get this great, beautiful picture of heaven in today's verses that hopefully will help us do exactly that, stay fixed on who God is and ultimately what the end goal is for all of us. And so last week, we were in the six seals. If you remember that the the one, the father on the throne had a document, a scroll, it had seven seals on it. And in last week's verses, Jesus, the lamb, who is the only one who is worthy starts opening the scrolls. He gets through six of them. He doesn't do all seven. So the six seals have been opened and we're going to carry on now with Revelation chapter seven. Let's take a look starting in verse one. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. Amen. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So what we notice right away is, where's the seventh seal? We just had all this drama in the last passage. We're opening up seal one, two, three, four, five, six. And as we go into chapter seven, I mean seven, right? That makes sense. The seventh seal should be open up here. And what happens instead is we go in a different direction. And it makes Revelation challenging. We've said this already in this series is that if we're trying to read it like a very linear step-by-step passage, Revelation doesn't always do that. There seems to be some leaping around at times. There is potentially even some sort of time shifting happening. We might be seeing stuff that kind of happens longer down the road in eternity, not necessarily what's happening right now in the moment. And so if you're eager to know what happens with the seventh seal, you're going to have to wait a little bit longer because chapter seven doesn't deal with that at all. What happens instead is these angels show up starting in the first few verses. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. So people who are Christian flat earthers would point point to a passage like this and say, see, clearly the world is not round. The Bible clearly says there are corners. Globes don't have corners. And therefore, the word of God makes clear that the earth is flat and not round. But I I have said this many times. I think we're very, very, very inconsistent in the book of Revelation with the things that we decide are literal and the things that we decide are symbols. And what I think most people end up doing is that if it fits my narrative, I'll take it the way I want to take it. And it doesn't really matter what I'm doing with the rest of the book. And so the four corners of the earth is something that the Bible says. The Bible in other places also talks about the roundness of the earth. We know because people have been in space that it's round. We just know that. We've seen it. So we don't need to take this verse that literally in that way. But these angels are there. They're holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. These are the winds of judgment. They are holding back the judgment of God for now. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God." And so these angels come. There is wind of judgment, apparently, that's going to come upon the trees and come upon the land, but they are there to hold it back. They are not ready to release it yet, and it just reminds us yet again that absolutely everything that is happening in Revelation, God is in control of it. There is nothing happening that he is not allowing to happen. And even though it might seem chaotic as a book at times, God is in control. He is orchestrating it all. He is putting limits in place at times. He is the one figuring it out. And so this angel comes and says, before the rest of the judgment can come, 
we have to do some sealing. We have to put a mark on the foreheads uh, of the people of the servants of God. And so what is the seal that they're talking about and who are these servants of God that they're talking about? There's a picture, as we have said often in this series, so much of Revelation ties back to the Old Testament. And so if we look at the Old Testament, we can start to see the connection points of what Revelation is really getting at. And so a seal on the forehead, it's something that uh, Catholics will do. There's a picture of that there on Ash Wednesday. Uh, Pentecostals will put oil on the forehead when they're praying for somebody. And so we've kept some of that imagery at times. But in Ezekiel chapter 9, God's judgment is coming upon the land. And in Ezekiel chapter 9, God says, wait, before the judgment comes, go to my faithful servants and mark them on their forehead. Mark them on their forehead, and that mark will spare them from the judgment that is coming. So most likely, anyone reading Revelation in the first century would probably say, okay, this sounds an awful lot like Ezekiel chapter 9, that there was a time already in history where God spoke of this, and it wasn't literal at that time. It was a symbol in Ezekiel, and is most likely meant to be a symbol in Revelation, but that God is setting apart his people. God is marking his people for protection. We've seen him do that with Israel already. When the plagues were raining down on Egypt, Israel was protected in that time. So this all sounds very familiar and it sounds very similar. So before the rest of the judgments of Revelation can come, God's going to mark these people for protection. He's going to put a seal on them. And we're going to see a little later in Revelation that a great beast is going to rise up. And we'll take time to talk about who that beast might be. But we are all probably familiar, if you've been around church for a while, with the idea of the mark of the beast, right? That the beast will mark everyone on their forehead or on their hand. And so it seems to suggest that there is, uh, in Ezekiel's time, this was true. In Israel's time, in Egypt, this was true. And in the book of Revelation, it's true. It seems to be that we are either marked for God or marked for the enemy. That there is no neutral ground. There is no middle ground. We either belong to the Lord or we belong to the enemy. And so this seal is marking the ones who belong to God. We see this idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, which says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. A little later, Ephesians will also talk about the idea of the Holy Spirit being the seal of God. It's the way that God stamps his people. The Holy Spirit says, this person belongs to me. This person is part of my family. And so that is probably what it is talking about. I don't know that an angel is literally going to come and we're going to have stuff show up on our heads at various points. I think it's more likely a symbol. And most likely, if you look at 2 Corinthians and Ephesians, to mean the Holy Spirit, that those who have have the Holy Spirit are already sealed. They are marked as ones who belong to God. As with everything in Revelation, much of what I'm saying is up for debate. And so as the seal is getting ready to come, we want to know who this group is. So I won't read all of this again, verse 4 and 8, because I'm impressed I did it the first time. But verses 4 through 8 uh, talks about the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel, and then 12 different groups of Israel are listed at 12,000 people each, and that together comes 144,000. So who are these people? Who are the 144,000? Uh, as always, tremendous debate, and, and it's not made crystal clear. But we've talked in Revelation how 
Now, the Bible likes the number seven. Uh, we'll talk today a bit. The Bible also likes the number 12. The number seven is typically a number that refers to perfection, completion. It's, it's considered a divine number. Uh, when you see a seven in the Bible, it usually means wholeness or perfection. When you see a 12 in the Bible, 12 is often a number that represents God's perfect rule. It's a, a number of God's perfect governance. And so there are 12 tribes of Israel. There are 12 apostles of the early church. And so 12 times 12 equals 144. And so when you read that last passage of all the 12 tribes and the 12,000 each, each tribe, you, get it, you arrive at 144,000. 12 tribes times 12,000 each equals 144,000. So that's a little bit like when Jesus is talking about forgiveness and he's asked, how often do I have to forgive? And he says, 70 times 7. And it's it doesn't literally mean that's a number you should be aiming for. It's just a way of saying you should just keep forgiving over and over and over and over again. I think this passage is probably similar. So in terms of who are the 144,000, there are some streams of the church who would take that very, very literally and say there will be exactly 144,000 people, not one on either side, but that's exactly the number of people, and they are being sealed. They are just a special group who are sealed for protection in the end times. There are others who would say uh, it's not maybe a literal 144,000, but that just represents another special group. It could be more people, it could be less, but it could just represent, the, you know, in the name of 12 times 12, just the, the complete number, the perfect number, God's perfect number that he's going to protect in the end times. There are some who would suggest this would be like the left behind viewpoint, that, uh, that these are people who are going to survive the end times after the church is raptured, that they will be there at the end, and they will, uh, I mean, and left behind, it's like they're going to take up their guns and fight off the Antichrist, which I have some problems with for lots of different reasons, so I don't like that interpretation the best, but they are a special group after the church has been raptured who will be here in the end times. And then, more symbolically, there are some who say, this represents Israel, that the Bible says Israel at the end will be saved, and this represents God saving Israel. The context literally says this number is coming out of Israel, and these are the 12 tribes of Israel, so that is a very reasonable interpretation. It's not limited to a literal 144,000, but that just means the perfect number, the complete number, that is Israel coming to salvation. And then still others would say it's not just Israel, it's Israel and the church, and, and it is just everybody. God is sealing his people. And 144,000 represents the perfect number of his people that as these judgments are coming upon the earth, that God's people will be protected. God's people will be sealed and God's people will be blessed. And so the last two, I think, are the best ideas behind it. It either represents Israel or it represents Israel and the church. There's a couple of verses that make me feel that way. The first one relating to Israel is Romans 11, 25 to 26. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. That Romans 11 unpacks God's continuing heart for Israel, although they had rejected the gospel, and although they had not received Jesus as their Savior, that a day will come when God will save his people, that Israel will come to know their Savior. And so it's possible that this 144,000 is that, that 
That is the moment when Israel comes to know their Savior. But on the other side, Ephesians 2, 12 to 14, talking to us Gentiles who aren't Jewish, it says, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. That was those of us who were not part of Israel. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, Jew and Gentile, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. So that in Jesus, there is no Jew and Gentile anymore. We are all united into one family under Christ. And so because of these verses, the Romans verse is, I think, a reasonable way to look at the 144,000 and say that probably represents Israel coming to protection and, and knowing we know later in Revelation armies are going to come against Israel, like the actual nation, and they're going to be protected. They are not going to be harmed by it. Um, the other verse is a reasonable way to conclude that it might mean not just Israel, but all of us, because we have all become part of the family of God now in Jesus. So where we were not a part of Israel, we have now been welcomed to God's table because of Jesus. And so I think the most likely interpretation is probably that it either means Israel or Israel and the church, and I don't really care where you land on it because the Bible isn't crystal clear on what it is. If I had to really guess, I would guess it means Israel just because the context is about Israel, but that's something to take with a grain of salt, and by all means, go do some digging and some research on your own. So the sealing happens of this 144,000, and then the scene shifts. We're in a whole other place. So verse 9 and 10. After this, after the 144,000 have been sealed, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. So way more than 144,000. From every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So this is a picture of what is either going on in heaven now or what will be going on in heaven in eternity. But either way, uh, there's this incredible, beautiful picture. And we talked earlier about visualizing the end and how that helps us get through things in life. And so we get this incredible picture of what heaven is like. This is what is going on around the throne. There's this great multitude, and it's not all white people. It's not all black people. It's every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, and they are before the Lamb, and they are celebrating, there is a party going on, and they are worshiping him for what he has done. They are glorifying who he is. And so this is a picture of what heaven is like for us. And, and whatever literally it is like, we don't know. And whatever, we know there's a new heavens and a new earth coming, and we're going to be raining, and it doesn't really give us a lot of tips on what that raining looks like. But what we can say for sure about this picture of heaven that we get is that all peoples are gathered together. Every wall that divides us has fallen down, and there is celebration and there is worship going on around the throne. They are praising him. There are palm branches flinging in the air, and that might remind you of John chapter 12 when Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem, heading off Holy Week as he is heading into his passion and he comes in in the triumphal entry. John chapter 12 tells us that the crowds that were there shouting Hosanna had palm branches and they were waving them in the air. And this was a common thing at the time. This was a Roman practice that was very common that when your king came back from war or your general came back from war and they were coming home to the city, the crowds would be there and they would be dressed in white and they would have these palm branches 
and they're just, they're bright, they're colorful, they're festive, and it was a sign of victory. If the, if the general came back in defeat, uh, they didn't have that, they wore darker clothes, it was a time of mourning. But in a time of victory, in a time of celebration, you took off your, your regular clothes, you put on your white clothes, you grabbed a palm branch, and you waved it as a way of acknowledging the victory. And so when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, what's interesting about it is they're acknowledging his victory before the cross. They are acknowledging by faith that the triumphant king is coming into the city. And now around the throne in heaven, apparently the same thing is going on. Now we know the victory is done, but the people of heaven are celebrating the victory that Jesus has brought about. The king has triumphed and heaven is celebrating this. And so these people there that we see, we've seen angels so far, we've seen seraphim, we've seen elders. These great multitudes seem to be us. These seem to be human beings because they come from the tribes and the nations of the earth. And so these are people uh, who either have passed away already or, again, this could be a bit of time hopping to the end of the story in Revelation. But we are seeing human beings who are grateful to to God for what he has done. And this beautiful picture of the unity of every nation, every tribe, every race coming together, and we as humans on earth do not do this very well, even as churches. It's been said, there's a famous saying that floats around that says, the most segregated hour in America is Sunday morning church, because churches tend to connect just by our own kind. We tend to connect by people who are of our own race, of our own language. We are not great at crossing these barriers, but every nation, tribe, and tongue, and language are represented here because the gospel is for the whole world. The gospel is not for one nation or one people group. The gospel is for everyone. And of all the religions and philosophies in the world, the gospel seems to have this uncanny way of crossing those boundaries in a way that other faiths don't. Like, Islam is still very much primarily a Middle Eastern faith. And even when it spreads and, and there will be a mosque here in Canada or in the States or wherever, it's still a Middle Eastern expression. It's a Middle Eastern language. It's Middle Eastern music. But the gospel has this way of keeping the story the same and yet crossing the boundaries so that if you go to church in Africa, it'll look a same, the same in some ways. There'll be music and they'll be preaching and things, but it'll be in their own language and in their own music. And that's what we would expect honestly, from a God who created all of these different races and people and who created a gospel that was going to go and cross all of those boundaries, is that our plan is not let's make everybody do church like the white people as Canadians, but it's that where is the gospel crossing these boundaries? Where is the gospel breaking down these walls? And whenever we see here on earth where racial issues are becoming a problem, we should be grieved by that as the people of God. Because we visualize the end where that's not going to be a problem. The kingdom of God does not have racial issues in eternity. Here on earth, we do because we are fallen and because we are sinful. But last year, you'll remember, there were riots and there were protests in the street. And it stirred up a lot of stuff. And some of us just went, I don't think that's real. That's not a problem we need to worry about. Racism has been dealt with. Some of us were moved with compassion. Some of us got really angry at the destruction. And there was just a whirlwind. And there, there is place maybe for a lot of those emotions that are valid. But we, the church, the people of God, here's our thing, is that... When Jesus arrived here on earth, he said, the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven has started. 
So even though we see eternity by faith and we read about it in passages like this and we say, okay, one day we're going to be in heaven and there's not going to be any racism at all. There's going to be no racial issues whatsoever. Here on earth, we know that's not the case yet. But our job as the people of God is we start living out the ways of the kingdom now. We start that right now. We start tearing down those walls now. And one of the things I said last summer when these protests and riots were going on was, of course, we condemn the violence uh, in any form. Any form of violence we would condemn. Uh, We're fully in favor of peaceful protest and making our voices heard. But I said, just listen, white people, fellow white people. Just listen to what they're saying. Talk to people of color in your life. Listen to their stories. Hear what they have to say. Because as a white person, I'm not qualified to weigh in on a person of color's experience. I'm just not qualified. I have no idea what it's like to be a minority in a group of white people. And so I, because I don't know, I'm ignorant by definition. And ignorance should push me to a posture of humility. Because in humility, I can say, hey, I am ignorant of this, but that's going to make me curious. And I'm going to ask lots of questions. And I'm going to do lots of listening. I'm not going to pass judgment at this point. I'm not going to be dismissive. I'm not going to get defensive. I'm just going to take a posture of humility, which means asking questions and listening. And saying, I'm ignorant to this. Inform me. Let me hear your story. And the thing is, guys, when we get to heaven... I think white people are almost certainly going to be in the minority (laughs) right here in Leamington and in Canada. We are maybe the majority, and that's what we've been most of our lives for those of us who are white. But when we get to heaven, I think there's going to be far more Asian and African and South American people who are there. And so our job now here on earth is to understand that we are people of the kingdom. And although we perceive this day in its perfection down the future, that a day will come when God will pull us all out of our sinfulness entirely and will leave this world with all of its baggage and everything behind and around the throne will be united in Jesus as all languages, tongues, and nations, our job as the people of God is to start living out the kingdom now. We live out the ways of the kingdom now. We're not just waiting for it to happen one day. And so that is something that is challenging for us for sure, but it is something for us to be, to be praying into and actively working on. That, okay, so how can I, with my life, live out this here on earth right now? How can I work to tear down these walls? How can I be a good brother, a good sister, a good listener? And how can I allow that happen here on earth and not just one day? So the crowds are there. They are all dressed in the same uniform, which is a white robe. And again, this was a symbol of victory so that when the king came home from war, they would all dress white and wave their palm friends. But we also get this picture that these people have made their robes white with the blood of the lamb. They have allowed themselves. So it's not just about victory. It's about purity, that these people are the ones who have received Jesus' gift of salvation. They've received the forgiveness of sins because of what he did for us. And so they are clean. They are white. And what's interesting is in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah goes to heaven, and he sees this picture of heaven. And when he beholds the purity of God, his reaction is, I don't deserve to be here. I'm so unworthy. Like he's so aware of his sin when he is face-to-face with the glory and the beauty and the holiness of God. When Peter, here on earth, realizes who Jesus is, Peter says, get away from me, Lord. I'm an unworthy man. He is so aware of his sinfulness and his shame compared to the purity and the holiness of God. When Jacob would have an encounter with God, he would say, wow, I can't believe I lived through that as a mortal man. I cannot believe I survived this view, this vision of the living God. And so when people have these encounters with the Lord, it's this overwhelming sense, like his holiness just shows our sinfulness so much. 
And yet no one around the throne in this passage is freaking out about their sin anymore. They are not covered in shame. They are not saying, I am unworthy. They're not boasting in anything, but they are recognizing, hey, we have these robes of pure white. We've been washed in the blood of the lamb. And so we can boldly be before the throne of God. No one in heaven is saying, get away from me, Lord. No, they are there and they are bold and they are shouting and they are worshiping and they are falling on their face and they are not freaking out about their sinfulness because they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. We'll come back to that in just a moment. And so there's this boldness that we are called to when it comes to the Lord. If your sins have been forgiven, if Jesus is your Lord, you can boldly come before his throne. And they are singing this song, and this is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, salvation belongs to our God. That's one of those, like, that's kind of the gospel in a nutshell. Salvation belongs to our God. We don't save ourselves. We don't save ourselves through a religion. We don't save ourselves through a system of trying to make God happy. We don't save ourselves by following the rules really, really, really well. No, salvation belongs to our God. He does the saving. He is the one who has the plan. He is the one who executes the plan. He is the one who does the saving. Salvation belongs to our God. And he was the one who saw us in our helplessness, in our sinfulness, in our unworthiness, and said, they can't save themselves. I'm going to have to come and do it for them. And so Jesus comes as our Savior, and Jesus comes and goes to the cross for us, and Jesus comes and lays down his life for us, and the punishment that brought us peace with God was placed upon him. And as his blood is shed, Scripture says that Jesus became sin for us, and just because God's solution for sin is we got to kill it. Sin needs to die. Jesus became sin and let himself be nailed to that cross. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus our sinfulness and nailed it to the cross and killed it. In exchange for that, what do we get out of it? As if that wasn't enough, we get to become the righteousness of God. We are his purity now. We are righteous, not because we ourselves are righteous, but because Jesus' righteousness is given to us. And so the crowd is there shouting, salvation belongs to our God. If you guys are ever writing a worship song, it should write a song about this, okay? At some point, salvation belongs to our God. He is the one who saves us. Moving on, verse 13. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. I love that because John obviously doesn't know the answer. And so it's like, why don't you tell me what you think it is, elder? And we'll see if our answers line up together. You know who they are. The elder said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So the great tribulation, that phrase, you've heard that before probably if you've been around church for a while. Uh, it can refer to the end times, and some people interpret it that way for sure. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 24 lays out, here are the signs that I am about to return. Here are the things that you should watch for, and he talks about wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and a lot of the same types of things that we see happening in Revelation. So Jesus does say, before I return, as we get closer to the end, the earth is going to get shaken, and he would liken it to a woman in labor. He would say, it is a painful time, sorry to Pastor Sarah, 
Sarah, who's here and who's pregnant right now. But it is a painful time, but it's a painful time that's the last stretch before new life comes. And with new life comes joy and celebration and pain gets forgotten. And so in that sense, every pregnant woman, every baby that is born is really a symbol of the gospel. It's a symbol of the the new creation that is coming. It's this living parable of what God is doing. Romans says all creation is groaning. It's like a woman groaning in labor pains. It's just waiting for the end to come, the fullness, the culmination of the kingdom. And so Jesus said at the end, it's going to be like a woman in labor. There's going to be an escalation of pain and trouble, and then eventually it's going to culminate in something incredible and beautiful. And so some take that term great tribulation to mean that. If you're a futurist looking at Revelation, it would be that, that there is going to be bad stuff that happens before Jesus comes, and this end times struggle is called the great tribulation. But it has also been pointed out for anyone in those seven churches that we've been looking at already, anybody who was there, they probably felt like they were in a time of great tribulation already. There was persecution happening, and it was going to get worse. People were being martyred. There was a great struggle and a great cost to follow after Jesus. And so they probably thought they were in this. And at various times in church history, again, depending on how you're interpreting Revelation, but at various times, it probably felt a lot like you were in the end times. Anyone who was a Christian in Germany during the time of Hitler probably felt like they were in the great tribulation, that there was this time that it was coming. And so how you interpret it is going to depend on how you look at the book. Some people think that Revelation was primarily fulfilled in the first century. Some believe it's primarily about the end times and what's coming there. Some people feel like we've been in Revelation all this time. And so there's value in all of those views. There's problems with all of those views. However you interpret the term great tribulation will depend on how you're reading the book in general. Either way, The point in all of it is always the same, that in times of struggle and tribulation, our job is to persevere. Our job is to keep going. Our job is to hold tight. Our job is to keep trusting the Lord. Our job is to keep seeking him. We keep on pressing through. So these people in heaven are ones who are surviving this great tribulation, whether that was past, present, or future, and they have made their robes clean in the blood of Christ. They have been transformed in that way. Now, I don't know if you've ever cut yourself badly, but blood doesn't tend to make things clean. Blood tends to make things a bloody mess. It tends to make things much worse. And there is something unique in the blood of Jesus, that the blood of Jesus actually does cleanse us. And it, it used to be in our worship all the time. There's very few worship songs that sing about his blood anymore. But we used to sing about the wonder-working power of the blood and the blood that transforms us and how precious is the flow and all of these things. And it can sound a little morbid if you're not familiar with the story and with the language, but it's that the blood of Jesus, because he died, it's It's not just that there's blood. It's because he died, because he paid the price, because without the shedding of blood, Scripture says there is no forgiveness of sins, that because his blood was shed, we are forgiven. And so again, no one is standing before the Lamb right now saying, get away from me, Lord, I'm too unworthy. They are standing there clothed in white because the blood of Jesus has made them righteous, has made them pure to stand in the presence of God without fear, that they can boldly come before the throne. And so when we say, Lord, I acknowledge my sin and I'm turning from my sin and I need your forgiveness and I am bowing my knee to you as Lord and I am following after you in my life, that's how the blood works. 
We receive the gift and our sins are washed away and we can boldly come before his throne. The blood of Jesus, unlike any other type of blood, the blood of Jesus makes us clean. And so these people who are standing there are pure and righteous and bold in Jesus as they worship him. Last couple of verses, verse 15 to 17. Therefore, these people, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not be down on them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And I don't think I've ever done a funeral ever where we didn't read these verses because the picture of heaven that it gives us is so beautiful that this is a place where we are face-to-face with the Lord, we are safe in him, we are in his presence. We don't need to worry about the, t- the trials and the, the struggles of life, uh, the hunger, the thirst, the heat, the pain, because Jesus is there. He will lead us to streams of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more pain, no more death, no more struggle, no more sorrow. It is the place where all of those things disappear. These verses here come from a couple of other verses in Isaiah, Isaiah 49.10, which says that they will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and will lead them beside springs of water. And then Isaiah 25, verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And so John cobbles these together, paraphrased a little bit, but these are the scriptures. This is the Old Testament connection that we are talking about, that there is a place that the Lord is inviting us to, where there is no struggle, where there is no death, where there is no heartache, where there are no tears. There is no disgrace. We can boldly be in his presence, and we will be with him forever. The lamb at the center of the throne will be the shepherd. And I just love the language of that, the juxtaposition. When is a sheep ever the shepherd, right? The sheep is usually under the shepherd. In our case, the lamb will be the shepherd. Jesus is uniquely suited to be our shepherd because he became one of us and because he laid his life down and because he has risen again, he can now lead us into the ways of God. The lamb has become the shepherd. Come on up, worship team. We're just about ready to wrap up here. So what do we do with it all? In our year of thriving, we've talked about what does it mean to thrive in this time? What does it mean to uh, not just get by, not struggle or stumble through, but to actually thrive in the Lord in 2021? How do we do that? What's going to help us do that? So first of all, we're going to be able to do that when we can visualize heaven, when we can keep our eyes fixed there. And scripture tells us elsewhere, like, fix your thoughts on things above, on heavenly things. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Like, when we can find our way there, when we are consumed with heavenly things and not earthly things, we will thrive. And one of the things I've learned in the last year is that a lot of my thriving has to do with my earthly things. It just does. And as much as I would like to say that it doesn't, that, you know, good things happen in my life and it's easy to be worshipful and hard things happen and it's harder to be worshipful. And I'm realizing, man, there's just work to do there, that I I am still very much caught up in earthly things. And so we will thrive when we are consumed with heaven and heavenly things and not just fixated on earthly things. No one that we saw around the throne today is freaking 
freaking out about earthly circumstances anymore. They are face to face with the Lamb and their hope is there. Their peace is there. They are consumed with Him. We will thrive in this time as we worship. We've talked about this already in the series that worship is so important and, and we worship with our lives, but we also worship with our songs. And there's something about the song that is important where as we worship, our eyes get off of ourselves, our eyes get off of our circumstances. We put our eyes where they're supposed to be and we lock on Him who is worthy of our worship. And when that happens, like the old hymn says, the things of earth grow strangely dim as we turn our eyes upon Jesus in the light of his glory and in the light of his grace. We will thrive in this time as we find meaningful things to do. I was on a call with our denomination this week and they had a, a burnout specialist come on the call uh, and she just helps people, not just pastors, but anybody, you know, doctors, lawyers, people who are getting close to burnout. And there's, there is a concern just across the board in our denomination about how pastors are navigating this time. And so we're trying to nip some things in the bud and be proactive in this. And so she was talking about how do we avoid burnout? How do you do it in a year like we're having where things aren't quite the same and we can't do everything we want to do and, and there's just a lot of struggle in this time. And she said, you know, here's some common things people are feeling at this point. There's kind of a fogginess in our heads. There's a lack of motivation. Not a total lack maybe, but we're just kind of like not doing what we should have. And there can be frustration and anger and depression and anxiety and, uh, and just a, a not despair necessarily, but hope isn't there the way it should be. And so all of these things are common right now. And she said, there's an antidote to all of it. There is an antidote to that feeling. There is a, an opposite way we can move. And she said, it's very simple, but it can be challenging to figure out. But basically, it's just this. She says, you have to find meaningful things to do right now. You have to find meaningful things to do. You have to find meaning in the things that you do. And so whether it's staying home with our family, we need to make that meaningful. Some of us are able to find meaning in our jobs. Some of us aren't because our jobs just kind of aren't that way. That's not where we look for meaning. But we need to find ways to make a difference. And so I spent a couple of hours yesterday driving around, dropping off some of the Mother's Day gifts and just taking five or 10 minutes to chat with people in their driveways. Man, was it good for my soul. And I'm going to presume it was good for their soul, although they might have just been saying, Chris, go get going. My day is busy. But it was good for my soul to see people's faces, to hear people's voices. It was important. I spent time this week. Uh, we have people in the Mennonite home who can't get out. I spent time on the phone with each of them. Just, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? Let's just catch up on life and what's going on. And man, it was just good. It was good for my soul. My wife went and had coffee with a neighbor this week, and they, they did it wisely, safely. They were outside, they were far apart, but we were just a bit concerned about how this neighbor was doing, and so Sarah went over, and it's, I guess, technically against the rules, but we're called to love our neighbor, and we're gonna find wise and good ways to do that, even in this time. And so Sarah just went and had a refreshing time. Someone else, Marlene, stopped by our house last week, just visited with Sarah for an hour in the driveway, and Sarah said, man, it was good. It was just nice. There are ways that we can find meaning. There are ways that we can find purpose right now. And we're reminded in this time that church is not primarily a place that we go to. Church is primarily something that we are. We are the church. And we are the church all week long. And we can be the church on a phone call with one another or with a visit with one another or with a text or with a message or whatever else we want to find. We are the church. And there are lots of meaningful ways. Now, it's less convenient because we used to just all come to one room on a Sunday and you see a bunch of people and it was just really easy to do it that way, this definitely requires a little more. But the ones who are thriving in this time are the ones who are saying,
saying, okay, I'm not going to wait to go to church to be the church. I will be the church right now. And I will find ways to love my neighbor. I will find ways to encourage and bless my brothers and sisters. I will make meaning out of this season. I will find meaningful ways to connect and be a blessing. And the ones who are doing that, honestly, in our church are the ones who are thriving. So we will thrive when we are consumed with heaven and heavenly things and not earthly things. We will thrive when we worship him in the worthiness of his worship. And we will thrive when we find the meaningful things we can do right now to love our neighbor and to love the Lord and to be a blessing. And so we're going to worship in that vein a little more before we wrap up today. And so the words will be on the screen there at home. Crank up the volume. Don't let it be awkward because you're sitting with your wife two inches away. We're going to worship with passion because he's worthy of our worship today. I'll come up and pray at the end. Worship team, lead us on. <laughs> 